This is episode 35 of the Angry Tech News Podcast for Wednesday, May 25th, 2022. This is the Angry Tech News Podcast at angrytechnews.com. Now your host, the angry programmer with a mic, Brian Bemrose. From the wherein I speak about nothing department, I received a number of comments about last week's sad puppy plea. To my surprise, not all of them were negative. Of course, nobody commented to say that they had actually recommended the show to another person, the very thing I asked you to do, so maybe my sad puppies aren't as effective as I'd like. If you did recommend ATN to another human being, please tell me in the comments. Well, okay, you should, but that'd be if there was a comments page for these shows. I don't post the show to any platforms with built-in comments. So instead, maybe send an email to ryan at angrytechnews.com. Or maybe toot me on Mastodon at sirbemrose at noagendasocial.com. Or send a boostagram using a Podcast 2.0 compliant app found at newpodcastapps.com. Like and subscribe while you're at it. Yeah, don't do that. Meanwhile, I promise not to emotionally manipulate you like that again, at least not on every show. I mean, no more than every few months anyway. Certainly no more often than... Other more successful podcasts can get away with it where that sort of ploy seems to work to pump up donations. Something I received far fewer comments about was an unannounced A-B test with the format of the show last week. I presented all of the stories in episode 34 without naming the department where they came from, just to see if you'd notice. You didn't, but worry not, I decided I didn't like the change. Renaming departments is one of the little ways that I amuse myself while writing up the show, and I intend to continue. I assure you that every story this week will have a department, even when it's not needed. I did want to report on some quick follow-ups to previous stories I've done on this show, such as, for example, the fact that Netflix has started laying off employees or that Google's Russian subsidiary is now declaring bankruptcy because their bank accounts are frozen and they can't pay bills after the company pulled out of the country and the government of Russia froze their accounts. But I've been warned that it's unbecoming to lead off every conversation with I told you so, so I won't. You're just going to have to read about those in the show notes. From the offline is dead department. It's the end of an era for podcast listeners. Literally. The Apple iPod, the streaming audio device for which podcasts were named, is no longer in production. The iPod, for those of you too young to remember an age before smartphones, is roughly what you'd get if you took the radio's GPS trackers, online apps, and subscription plans out of the iPhone and just had a media player that you had to sync with your computer. Imagine your phone that you had permanently locked in airplane mode before giving it, say, to a child. Back in the heyday of these devices, we had no choice but to listen to a podcast or music outside while exercising, completely oblivious to any social media notifications until after we got home. We didn't know any better. Apple first shipped the original iPod in 2001 and ultimately released 26 different versions of the iPod Classic Mini Nano Shuffle and Touch. The last model, the 7th generation iPod Touch, was released in May of 2019 and is now out of production. Okay, well, we don't know for certain that Apple has stopped production. The company doesn't like to tell their customers or even their shareholders silly little details like what products they're making. The last time Apple even reported iPod sales was 2015, after which they were just rolled up into the spreadsheet under media devices. 
But the Apple website now lists the availability for the iPod Touch as, quote, while supplies last. A pretty decent sign they're not making any more of them. I would be remiss at this point as an angry podcaster if I didn't take this opportunity to tell a personal anecdote bashing on a different company. During the heyday of iPod popularity, Microsoft, who likes to fantasize that they can compete in the consumer market, came out with a comparable device, the Microsoft Zune. The Zune was a severely underrated media device, equal to the iPod of the day in performance, superior to it in audio quality, and about half the price, lacking the characteristic Apple pretentiousness that people pay such a premium for. The weakness of the Zune device was its eponymous companion software, a full-featured media management suite that included a media player, a database-driven library manager, a music store, a CD ripper, a DVD player, and a music streaming app from MSN Music, of course, all wrapped up in Microsoft's sleek Windows 8-style Metro UI. It boasted a memory footprint that put Google Chrome to shame, a startup time that made Windows Media Player feel snappy and responsive, and a reliability that made a Bethesda RPG look stable. That software was the only supported way to sync files with your Zune device. See, for syncing, the Zune media used the Media Transfer Protocol, which was developed at Microsoft, but made into an open standard and adopted by Android and many other devices of the day. But Microsoft had to make a lot of concessions in order to get deals with music publishers, since they lacked a Steve Jobs to simply distort reality in their favor. One of those concessions was DRM. So, the MTP implementation for the Zune device was wrapped in a custom proprietary wrapper that was encrypted by the Zune software and decrypted by the firmware on the device. As a result, the only way you could get media on or off of this sleek, performant, high-quality, portable device was to install this bloated, ugly, unstable software. Oh yeah, and of course it only ran on Windows. It didn't matter if you didn't care to use the player or the library manager or the online store. You couldn't so much as sync an MP3 unless it was indexed in Zune's library management database. The last bug fix release of the Zune software was in August of 2011. Microsoft officially dropped support for the Zune software in 2015, but by then it was only a lucky few who could even install and run it without crashing. Microsoft never released a driver or any other method of syncing the devices. They just, it was just that software and that was it. I have three Zune devices in my home now. Don't knock it, they were cheap at the company store and the best damn podcast players I ever listened to. All three still charge, boot up, and play music if I want to, but they're all basically useless because I can't get files in or out of them. DRM and a failed attempt at bundling the kitchen sink when all that was needed was a driver and a shell script doomed this otherwise promising bit of hardware. But of course, that's all in the past now. Who the hell wants a music player without an app these days? Today, all music comes with advertising, privacy trackers, and a $7.99 a month subscription. Who doesn't prefer that over the dark ages when you had to sync a file, anyway? The Apple site points out that you can still listen to your podcasts on your mu or your music, if that's your thing, in iTunes, on the Apple Watch, Apple TV, the HomePod Mini, or, of course, the iPhone. Or if, like me, you prefer to play your music using an open-source player downloaded from F-Droid, then you don't have to care about the iPod and should probably have just skipped this story to the next chapter in your podcast player. You are using a Podcast 2.0 compliant player, aren't you? From the VIG Inflation Department. As long as we've still got Apple in the crosshairs, Business Insider is reporting that Apple is making a change to their App Store developer rules, changing app subscription increases from opt-in to opt-out. 
When you try to activate an in-app subscription from an iOS app, the operating system pops up a dialogue asking you to confirm that you want to pay so many dollars per month to the app as a protection against fraud. Once you confirm, Apple charges you that amount each month and then gives 70% of it to the app developer. If the developer then decides to change the price of the subscription, the OS again notifies you about the new price with a pop-up on the phone as well as an email to your email account. If you say yes, your bill goes up. If you say no, the app dev gets notified. Usually that means that you get your service canceled, although I guess if you don't, you're lucky. The change comes if you don't respond to that price change notification. Previously, Apple would treat the new price as an opt-in, where you would only pay the new price if you positively agreed. Some people complained that users were missing the notifications and getting their app accounts terminated prematurely. So Apple is now making the change. If an app dev raises their subscription prices by 50% or $5 a month, whichever is lower, and you don't respond to the price hike notification, Apple now assumes that you're cool with the higher price and charges you more accordingly. I mean, fortunately, there's limits. If a dev tries to raise by more than 50% or more than $5 a month or uh, 50, I think 50 a year, or if they try to raise prices more than once a year, then iOS falls back to the old model and you have to confirm. But still, a number of consumer advocates are concerned by this change, saying it will lead to scenarios where a user's monthly bill will balloon without their knowledge or say so. It's not hard to imagine a scenario where you wouldn't get such a notification. Maybe you lost or stopped using your phone. Maybe you changed email addresses. Maybe your email is just so overloaded by spam from that it's easy to overlook a single message. Something I think most of us can relate to. In Apple's defense, they are doing due diligence with the notifications. Every doomsday scenario resulting from this change does require at least some degree of user negligence. The difference seems to be that the company no longer has your back. And if you get busy and ignore your notifications and mails, then it's on you. I'm not really sure why this change was necessary. The old opt-in method did a better job at protecting end users who are Apple's customers after all. The cost of a mistake and the speed at which a bad outcome is resolved both seem to be better the old way. After all, most people are going to be much quicker to notice if a service they want to use is being shut off than they are to notice an increased monthly bill for a service they might not use. I have no love for Apple, but they do come out on the side of the end user more often than most Silicon Valley corporations. So just this once, I'll give them the benefit of the doubt and refrain from suggesting that this change, making some Apple users mistakenly get charged higher monthly bills, is being made for the sole purpose of increasing Apple's 30% share of that bill. From the always on, even when it's off department, continuing the iOS theme on this Apple heavy show, researchers at the Secure Mobile Networking Lab in Germany have published a paper alerting us to a novel class of vulnerability in Apple iPhones, which could theoretically allow malware to run even when the phone is turned off. When an iPhone is shut down, whether by explicitly turning it off or due to a low battery state, the device doesn't actually power off. Instead, it goes into a firmware controlled low power mode in which many of the wireless chips stay on. For convenience. In LPM, you can still use NFC to access your credit cards, ID cards, or any card you've set up using Apple Wallet's Express Mode. You can use the Bluetooth to unlock your vehicle using the Digital Car Key Protocol, more on that later. And you can locate your phone via Apple's Find My network thanks to the still active ultra-wideband radio. Researchers explored the possibility of introducing malware into the firmware of these always-on chips in the iPhone. 
Using a jailbroken iPhone, they were able to introduce custom code into Bluetooth chips firmware, which ran even while the phone was powered down. The phone appeared to have no security features to detect or prevent firmware tampering in this way. Malware running in this firmware could easily be used to exfiltrate device IDs, encryption keys, or any data sent wirelessly using the affected radio, and can continue to do so even when the user thinks the phone is turned off. The researcher's proof of concept required physical access to a jailbroken iPhone, but if combined with a yet undiscovered vulnerability, it is conceivable that an over-the-air attack could pass from phone to phone, such as the Bluetooth key negotiation hack found to affect Android phones back in 2019. If a phone's firmware were infected by malware this way, it could be extremely difficult to clean or even detect. Because the problem is in system firmware, the vulnerability can't be patched with an over-the-air operating system update. Any patch would require, at a minimum, a visit to an Apple store for new chip firmware, but most likely would just they'd swap the phone out. In a move that surprises absolutely no one, Apple did not respond when asked for comment prior to the paper's publication. To be clear, this nightmare scenario has a lot of hypothetical what-ifs and could be a long way off from being a reality. But you can be assured that if white hat researchers are probing this stuff for vulnerability, then so are the bad guys. Kind of makes you long for the days when phones had batteries you could just pull out, doesn't it? From the yet another department department. Another paper, this time from security researchers NCC group, describes a relay attack vulnerability in Bluetooth low energy protocols used for keyless door access. The attack goes something like this. An attacker watches you get out of your car in the parking lot of a shopping mall or sports arena. Your car automatically locks as it senses that the Bluetooth fob in your pocket goes out of range. A little while later, the attacker stands next to you while you're in line for some nachos, and his phone starts a Bluetooth transaction with the key fob in your pocket. His phone sends the details of the interaction to his buddy, who's standing next to your car with a phone that replays all of the fob's data. The car detects the fob via Bluetooth, decides you must be nearby, and unlocks. Bob's your uncle, and your expensive car drives away without you. The white paper specifically tested on Tesla cars using their keyless entry fobs, and indeed, most of the stories I found on this breathlessly intimated just how insecure Tesla is because of it. But the vulnerability affects everything that uses the BLE protocol, including most of your smart door locks, the entry system for many commercial buildings, industrial control systems, a dozen other models of keyless entry cars, and even the connection between your smartphone and your smartwatch. Relay attacks against Bluetooth are not new. Many devices employ things like encryption and latency detection to detect and reject relays. The difference with this one, according to NCC researchers, is that the relay is played at the link layer, which deals in radio signals rather than in a host driver, which deals in data packets. Using the link layer bypasses most encryption schemes, including Tesla's, they say. And bypassing the host driver avoids most of the latency introduced by the operating system, which makes them almost as fast as when there's no relay. According to the paper, this technique which uses about $100 worth of custom hardware, can be used against any device which unlocks based on proximity with no user inter interaction. The researchers also demonstrated on smart door locks under the Quickset and Wiser brand names, and they opened immediately. If you're worried about your Tesla driving off as a result of one of these relay attacks, the company recommends that you turn on the optional feature, which requires you to enter a PIN code before your car will start. And if you're worried about somebody breaking into your house by fooling your smart door locks with a Bluetooth relay attack, I have a much lower tech suggestion. Invest in a deadbolt. 
From the Economic Risk Department. Coinbase freaked out a lot of its customers this week with an SEC filing made amidst the current cryptocurrency downturn. A part of the filing included a warning to investors should the company somehow find itself in bankruptcy proceedings. <clears throat> because custodially held crypto assets may be considered to be the property of a bankruptcy estate, in the event of a bankruptcy, the crypto assets we hold in custody on behalf of our customers could be subject to bankruptcy proceedings and such customers could be treated as our general unsecured creditors. Translated, what this really means is that if the company does go under, they take the money from their customers' custodial crypto wallets and pay back their investors first, leaving the customers high and dry. That cryptocurrency does not come with an FDIC to insure your funds came as quite a surprise to a lot of customers who held Coinbase accounts, and many started to suddenly take their funds out, causing CEO Brian Armstrong to come out and publicly assure everybody that Coinbase is not about to go bankrupt anytime soon. Coinbase shares closed down 27% last Wednesday as a result. Their first quarter revenue also showed a loss of $430 million, although that's primarily because Bitcoin has tanked recently. Personally, I believe Armstrong that Coinbase is in no immediate danger of bankruptcy, but I brought this story anyway because the risks are real. Most people, when they first dabble in cryptocurrency, start out by creating an account with a big trader like Coinbase. They sign up for a custodial wallet, a term for a crypto wallet that somebody else manages all the encryption keys for you, for you because it's far less hassle than trying to muck about with creating and managing your own keys. But the downside should be obvious. If somebody else holds the encryption keys to your wallet, then, well, it's not your wallet. They get to decide when and how money is taken out of that wallet, whether to pay it back and, and whether to use it to pay back investors during a bankruptcy or even to whether to freeze your assets because you drove your truck near the wrong Canadian prime minister or simply to bleed off your money with some fee that you didn't account for. It's not technically your money if you aren't in control of it. And unlike big banks, there are no government regulations protecting you from a market crash, from grift, or from your own ignorance with cryptocurrency. When you control your own encryption keys, that's called a non-custodial wallet. Without those keys, it is mathematically impossible for someone to take your coins. So, just a friendly, angry public service announcement, if you ever decide to move from dabbling to seriously investing in cryptocurrency, it pays to manage your own wallet. Even better if it's on your own hardware, but the important thing is that you manage the encryption keys yourself. That way, you have no reason to freak out whenever some big banking corporation accidentally admits to the SEC that you aren't really their priority. From the How I Usually End These Shows department. Big angry thanks goes out to brand new ATN producers Myron Abolitz and Alexander Merkuryev, both of whose names I probably just screwed up, but who I thank regardless. Also to Sean McHugh Rhett Vandenberg, Steve Edwards, Curtis Peterson, and Don Mills for consistently coming in with their regular monthly donations. Plus, thanks to Dame DeLorean and Servo for big streaming sats boosts using podcasting 2.0 compliant apps found at newpodcastapps.com. Have I mentioned newpodcastapps.com enough in this episode? Nudepodcastapps.com. Just making sure. I'm still waiting for that big check from Podcast Index for advertising their stuff. Ha! Just kidding. Angry Tech News is produced on the value for value model. We do not take sponsors. We don't play ads and we don't charge you to listen. But we are funded by your donations. If you received value from listening to this show, please send some value back. Go to angrytechnews.com and click on the donate button. Send whatever you think this episode was worth to you, whether it's $50 or $250, if only. That's it for now. I'm Ryan Bemrose, the angry programmer with a mic. I'll be back next time with more 
Angry Tech News. This has been Angry Tech News with the angry programmer Brian Bemrose at angrytechnews.com. Stay angry. Stay angry. Stay.